Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to Beyond Black History Month. This is a hip-hop May takeover. I'm your host, Femi Redwood. This is part two of our story on the birth of hip-hop. Hip-hop May. The teenagers that pioneered hip-hop in the early 70s looked at everyday items but saw something bigger. Turntables, mics, spray paint, the flexibility of the human body. They weren't new, but they were turned into a new culture. This is something Grandmaster Kaz said. If you're not familiar with him, remember his name. We're going to talk about him in a little bit. But in a 2015 interview with MSNBC, Grandmaster Kaz said, hip-hop is the reinvention of an energy that existed since the beginning of time. And this reinvention was powerful. For example, it pushed some gang members to stop killing each other and instead fight artistically, like a division of the Black Spade Street Gang, which became the Zulu Nation, a group of MCs, DJs, graffiti artists, and b-boys. In the last episode, we started in the 60s, then looked at two of the initial elements of hip-hop, DJing and MCing. We also looked at that iconic 1973 DJ Cool Herc party. Today we're digging into the other initial elements of hip-hop, graffiti and breakdancing. I'm also talking to one of the MCs behind the song that changed everything. Rapper's Delight. Hip-hop to hip it. And hip it to be hip. Hip-hop to you don't. Stop the rock. A rocket to the bang, bang, boogie. To up jump the boogie. To the rhythm of the boogie to be. We're talking about it all, including the controversy you may not know about. Every time I'd come up with a new rap, he'd keep going back to the same rap. So I'm like, why does he keep saying the same raps? That's Master G from the Sugar Hill Gang. You'll hear from him along with hip-hop producer and historian Rich Nice, Run DMC's Daryl McDaniels, and the inventor of the scratch, Grand Wizard Theodore. Let's kick things off with graffiti. Like many elements of hip-hop, figuring out who is the first graffiti artist depends on who you ask. In the 1940s, American soldiers would visit movie theaters and write on walls. They would draw a bald man looking over a wall with the words, Kill Roy Lives Here. Some people consider that graffiti. In the 1950s, street gangs would mark their territory. Some people would consider that graffiti. But others might say graffiti started in Philadelphia by a boy trying to impress a girl. 
1965, a 12-year-old boy from North Philly named Daryl McRae was sent to a detention center. There, he earned the nickname Cornbread. He began writing that name on walls. When he got out, he met a girl in his middle school class named Cynthia. He liked her. So to impress Cynthia, he started tagging Cornbread Loves Cynthia in spots along his bus route. Shortly afterwards, the tag Julio 204 started popping up in New York City. This was around 1967-68. Julio was a Puerto Rican kid from 204th Street in Inwood. Get it? Julio 204? he would only tag in his neighborhood, but Taki183 would become the first person whose graffiti writings were citywide. He was also the first graffiti writer to be recognized by the media. Taki183 was a Greek kid from Washington Heights. In the summer of 1969, he heard about what Julio was doing and thought it was cool. So he started writing Taki183 in his neighborhood. The following year, he became a delivery person. That allowed him to tag Taki183 all over the city while making deliveries. In 1971, the New York Times figured out who he was and wrote an article about him. He told the paper his real name is Demetrius and 183 was the street he lived on. Back then, early graffiti writers used permanent markers, but as it exploded, artists started using spray paint. This evolved into the bright visuals and stylized letters we know today. Artists were young and brave. They sneaked into subway tunnels, broke into train yards, jumped fences, all to get their signature style seen by millions of New Yorkers. Initially, these young artists couldn't get into galleries, but in their minds, who needed a gallery when you had an entire city? But as quickly as this art went up, it could come right back down. Sometimes city cleaners removed it, other times a different crew painted over it. That's how I went to cool heart parties. For That's Rich Nice, our hip hop recounter from the last episode. From music production to helping establish the Bronx's Universal Hip Hop Museum, he's been involved in hip hop culture since the early days. He says graffiti existed before Herc's 1973 party, but Herc brought these elements together, and New York City made them famous. I don't like to put a lot on this 73 party only because there were functions and things happening prior to this. Cool Hurt had a sound system prior to this. He was writing on walls prior to this. This is an era when you didn't tell people that you wrote graffiti because we were writers. And so you, you had a pen name. It wasn't even called graffiti. That's something that the news put a, a name on it later on. You had a name that you wrote and you kept it a secret because you didn't want people to know. And you would write it in your school you would write it around other schools. You'd write it on the bus stop. You wouldn't really write in your own building in fear of your parents seeing that word that you wrote on your notebooks or somewhere in your room. And they would go, ah, you're writing in the building, eh? And so now you're like, oh, I'm in trouble. In trouble with your parents or the city. Politicians became laser focused on graffiti. In a way, many of them looked at the colorful art as if it were the cause of everything wrong with New York City. Not the crippling poverty, not the economic inequality, not the high unemployment, but graffiti. The city cracked down. Some train yards got overnight security, and the city passed a bill making it illegal to carry an open spray paint bottle. And despite the city being on the brink of bankruptcy in the mid-70s, 
hundreds of millions of dollars were spent cleaning graffiti from subways between 72 and 89. Run DMC's Daryl McDaniels loved comics as a kid. And when he first saw graffiti, he says it was like the comics jumped off the pages and onto the walls of his city. The graffiti was bringing the art to life. The art flowed the way my blood pumped. It wasn't just guys doing it. There were also girls. One of my mentors in art is a Lady Pink. She was a 15-year-old girl in the 70s running around, tagging the train, hopping fences, getting chased by dogs. But at 15, and she told me, Daryl, my gender didn't matter none. I had this art in me. I had to get it out. And when I saw what these older, the older kids, the older dudes was doing it, Lady Pink said, I'm coming right through the hole in the fence too. And they looked at her and they was like, Come on. Lady Pink was born in Ecuador and raised in Queens. According to Fast Company magazine, she would sneak out of her bedroom by jumping 10 feet down with a bag of paint. She'd tag subways, but be back inside before her mom woke up. Daryl says the only thing wrong about graffiti is they were writing on walls they didn't own. Eventually, galleries in Soho realized these kids were doing art, and some graffiti artists traded sides of buildings for canvas. If you go down to Soho right now, if you go down to the village and walk in the art galleries, I would say 65% of that is graffiti-looking art, along with the contemporary art and the Picassos and all. Basquiat, Keith Aaron. Hip-hop didn't just create rappers. It also created B-boys and B-girls. Breakdancers did crazy things with their bodies. They'd put a flattened piece of cardboard on the ground and pop, lock, torque, twist, spin, showing the same fearlessness that graffiti artists had, only doing moves that defied gravity. Rich, who started going to Herc's parties in 74, said not everyone was breaking. Quite contrary to popular opinion, it wasn't just a bunch of people spinning on their backs and spinning on their heads because that really wasn't even the vibe of the party at that time. At that time, we were doing a dance called The Freak. And The Freak was the dance. You found a girl in the party and you and her start doing The Freak dance. And you're like, woo! And you wanted to go to the party and do The Freak. You weren't trying to go spin on your back. I'm trying to do The Freak. I've seen girls' mothers come into the park and grab them by their neck and their ear and say, girl, get your behind upstairs. You're out here doing some damn freak dance. I know what you're thinking, but no. Rich says the freak dance was about outdancing someone, almost like a competition between you and the person you were dancing with. Rich was only about 10 when he was sneaking to these parties. He'd have to wait for his grandmother to fall asleep before slipping out of the bedroom window. There would be weekends where I thought I was going, but my grandmother just never went to, she just stayed awake. And I was just like, guess I ain't going tonight. And then I get the next day, yo, what happened last night? Oh, you missed it, man. Yo, Clark Kent was going off last night, man. Clark Kent was going off. Clark Kent was a DJ. And that's a term that was used back in the days was go off. And they say the dancers, man, it was burning. It was burning. Cause there was no such thing as really calling it breaking. They used to call it burning from burning Cool Herc started bringing saying the, the term B-boy, which was short for the break boy, you know, because they was playing the breaks. As in dancing in those extended breaks that Herc created. I talked about this in the previous episode. 
But how did kids in the neighborhood even learn how to do some of these flips and spins? Considering the median income in the South Bronx was just under half of what it was nationwide, parents didn't exactly have lots of money to send their kids to gymnastics. Gymnastics was very popular in the hood, but not because of the schools, because we didn't have it in the school. In the junkyard, when people would throw away mattresses, kids who could flip would jump and do flips in the junkyard on the mattresses. And everybody wanted their turn on the mattress. Even kids who couldn't flip wanted to try to learn to flip. And some kids would bring their flipping from the junkyard into the park and use some of their jumping techniques in the dance. He says the junkyard was their rec center. There used to be photos all around of kids in the inner city flipping on these mattresses. And then you would just hear your mother screaming, that bed have bed bugs, get off of that! Boy, get off of that! Bed bugs aside, these dancers really knew how to put on a show. When the circle happened, when they were dancing in the circle, oh, you just wanted to be in the circle. You just wanted to watch the circle. That's when you're dancing, you'll see who got the best moves. There's a term that they use now called nomadic b-boy. It was coined by Grand Mixer DST, and it's like basically means that wherever it was, we showed up, you know, and we didn't need a poster. Many times there wasn't even a flyer. It may have been word of mouth. There was no email blast. It was a phone call. Yo, they rocking in the park over here later on. What? Yeah, they're going to be jamming, so come through. Around what time? You know, when it get dark. Daryl says when he was a kid, his heroes were Bruce Lee and comic book superheroes. But B-Boys and Girls became a version of Spider-Man he could actually see in real life. They were our attitude. Even if you don't have the resources, which is money and real estate, you still can build a universe. They cut up cardboard boxes and put them on the concrete ground and have a dance floor. The fact that they could spin on their head was crazy, but the fact that they were creative and innovative enough to find a way to do what it is that they were doing. So when you look at those B-boys, they were like real life superheroes. I got a rhyme, I say, like Luke Cage, I'm a hero for hire. Raised in the age of the vinyl record buyer that came to Burma Kingdom, so they all brought fire. When that didn't work, they called me a liar. To tell you the truth, my kingdom can't be burnt. You can burn all this down, but you can't destroy this. And on that day, that is something they learned. Immortality, see, it has to be earned. I was bitten by a vampire and couldn't be turned. B-Boys breaking as I rock this mic. So damn amazing, watch them all take flight. Everyone couldn't rhyme and everyone couldn't DJ. But graffiti and breaking allowed more people to be part of the culture. And the DJ who invented scratching, Grand Wizard Theodore, says hip-hop helped them deal with life, which wasn't always pretty. That's why the B-Boys were B-Boying, trying to get that energy out of them. That's why the MC was writing rhymes, trying to get someone to listen to what they were feeling or listen to what they were saying. Then you got the DJ that's trying to play music and take his mind off of everything that's going on and stuff like that. Then you got the graffiti artist that's painting all these murals, all these different colors and stuff like that. And that's what we were going through in the Bronx before we created, recreated an art form, a culture we call hip hop. During the 1970s, some people thought hip hop was a fad. 
But as the decade closed, they realized that was not the case. The song Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang was a big part of that. The M-A-S-T-E-R, the G with a double E. See, go by the unforgettable name of the man they call him Master G. See, my name is known all over the world, by all the foxy ladies and the pretty girls. I'm going down in history as the baddest little rapper they could ever be. That's Master G, a.k.a. Guy O'Brien. He's one of the three members of the Sugar Hill Gang, along with Michael Wonder Mike Wright and Henry Big Bank Hank Jackson. Master G grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey, about 30 minutes away from the Bronx. His dad was a corporate pilot, but also a trumpet player. They had a studio in their basement, so jazz musicians were always over. All roads lead to me being who I am today. I was given an opportunity to really express myself. I started playing drums when I was seven. I started DJing when I was like 15. He started rapping after he heard a friend doing it at a party. I asked him what he was doing. He said, I'm rapping, man. That's what they're doing over in New York, you know. And so I put that into my repertoire of DJing and rapping. He was pretty young. We're talking high school still. In fact, he needed help getting to gigs. My friend's mom used to bring the equipment in the back of her station wagon to somebody's house. Bless her heart. Miss Cook, if you're still here, I, I thank you because we couldn't even drive. You know, I didn't even have a car. So this woman, this woman would, 8 o'clock, would take all of this, this, this equipment to your house. And the party would go till 1 o'clock. We would call Miss Cook at 1 o'clock in the morning. This woman would get out her bed and drive the station wagon over to wherever the party was. And we'd put all the stuff in the, in the thing and then take it back to Kevin, my friend Kevin's house. Enter Sylvia Robinson in 1979. She was a singer turned music producer. One night, she went to the legendary club Harlem World. MCs and DJs would perform there. She heard, God rest his soul, Love Bug Starsky rapping. And so she asked if that was on record. And at the time, it wasn't on record. It was only going on in the streets. So her son was around our age. They start looking for people who can rap because she says, this, this needs to be on record. They decide to, you know, record, re-record Good Times because it was the breakbeat of the summer. So they had the music already. Good Times was a song by La Chic. A reminder, hip-hop is not yet on records. So to hear the music, you either had to have a recorded tape from a party or club or see it in person at parties or places like Harlem World. Sylvia knew a recorded rhyme would be super successful. But she needed an MC, and she had been turned down by quite a few already. There was a guy in the pizza parlor who was from the Bronx who we knew. He made pizzas, a black dude, and he rapped, and everybody knew about him. So they were looking to hear him, and in that process, I was walking down the street. My friend spoke to Joey, which was uh, Sylvia's son, and they were like, we're looking for people who can rap. And my friend was like, well, if you want to hear somebody rap, you need to listen to him. So I got in the back of the car. Initially, we thought it was only going to be one person. So I thought I was in competition with Hank. And I was already intimidated because he was the guy from the Bronx who was legitimately supposed to be the real deal. Then we went up to her house. Mike came up and he proceeded to just rip and tear and do his thing. And she said, rather than choose between the three of you, three is my favorite number. I'm going to put the three of you together. And then we went to the studio and cut rappers alike. He didn't expect it to be much of anything. When I cut rappers alike, I really thought it was just... You know, an opportunity to be a little bit more popular right. in with Teenek and Hackensack. <laughs> I'd get some dates. I'd do some Not parties. Not some dates. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm 17 years old. 
you know, I was a, I was an awkward kid. When the record came out, Rapper's Delight pushed an underground culture into a commercial art. I interviewed a ton of people for this series. One of the questions I've been asking everybody, what was that one song that made you fall in love with hip hop? Most of the responses, without a doubt, Rapper's Delight. Here's Grand Wizard Theodore. When I first heard Rapper's Delight, I knew that I was a part of something that was going to last for a very long time when I heard Rapper's Delight. I was a part of something that's bigger than I was, and it just made me fall in love with it even more. He heard it everywhere, at parties or on the street. It was like every car that went by, every OJ that went by. And OJ was basically an Uber. Daryl connected with the lyrics Big Bang Hank rapped. When he heard the Superman rhyme, he knew he could rock with it. Imp the dimp, the ladies pimp, the women fight for Amanda Light because I'm the grandmaster with the three MCs and I can shock the hell for the young ladies. Um, Superman with the S on your chest and you fly through the air. So when he started singing that, oh, I can relate to that. And then the rhyme a little later, have you ever gone over your friend's house to eat and the food that ain't no good and the macaroni soggy and pee? So I was like, oh, yeah, my mom's cooked chicken and mac. So... It was Rapper's Delight. The record introduced a lot of people to music they never heard. It peaked at number 36 on the Billboard charts in January of 1980. It was the perfect combination. The music was phenomenal. The voice qualities, Hank's amazing voice, Mike's incredible voice. I got a pretty good voice myself. The content, you know, Mike's talking about what you hear is not a test and we're rapping to the beat. Hank, you know, Superman and that whole thing. And I'm pleading my case to the female population of the world. And you had the cosmetic aspect of it. And it, the timing was perfect for it because it had already, it was already a movement going on in the street. We just took it and put it on a form where everybody had access to it. You didn't, now you didn't have to go to the Bronx or you didn't have to be at the, you know, rooftop or whatever the case may be. You could now turn your radio on and get it. But the song is not without controversy. It became hip-hop's first ghostwriting scandal. Hank's rhymes were actually written by Grandmaster Kaz, a.k.a. Curtis Brown. He was a DJ, MC, and a member of the super-talented Cold Crush Brothers out of the Bronx. It's worth noting, whereas lots of rappers use ghostwriters today, this was not cool back in the 70s and 80s. Kaz wrote about this whole ordeal in a Medium post back in 2014. It's titled, Making Peace with Big Bank Hank. Kaz says he met Hank at a club. At the time, Kaz was going by Casanova Fly. They became cool and Hank started managing the group Kaz was in before he joined the Cold Crush Brothers. Hank ended up moving to Jersey for his pizza job. In the Medium Post, Kaz writes that Hank told him about Sylvia and detailed how she wanted Hank on a record. Kaz said it didn't really make sense because Hank was not an MC. Hank ends up asking to borrow Kaz's rhyme book, and Kaz says sure. You have to understand, they didn't know about publishing, writer's fees, royalties, because again, hip-hop isn't a business yet. Cass says he wasn't worried about anyone using his rhymes because he was so creative, he could just come up with more. And he didn't actually think Hank's records would be successful because again, he wasn't an MC. 
has figured if he was actually successful, he would then help the people that helped him in the Bronx. The song did blow up. But initially, Hank didn't tell anyone it wasn't his rhymes. Master G says he didn't know about any of this. He found out because the streets were talking. I'm 17 years old. I was a suburb kid. I went back and forth across the George Washington Bridge, but I wasn't hanging out at clubs. I didn't go to the party. So we didn't know. And Mike basically thinks same thing. He came from, you know, D.C. He grew up in Newark, went to D.C. He was a suburb kid. You know, we were in Jersey. We didn't know what was going on in the Bronx. The only thing that we knew about, the only person that was tangible to us was Hank. His story was, I'm rapping, I'm a rapper, and I rap in, you know, the Bronx. So we took it as law. So at the audition, when we were in the car, he's saying, I'm the CAS and the OVA, and the rest is FLY. And I thought that was kind of cool. I was like, wow. So I thought, he's saying he's a Casanova, and he's fly. I, I, I didn't know that was a person's name. So then we get to the studio, because he said the same raps. Everywhere, all the way up to including that session. And that's the thing that kind of tripped me out. Because like when we went to Miss Robinson's house to audition that night, every time I'd come up with a new rap, he'd keep going back to the same rap. So I'm like, why does he keep saying the same raps? Because every person that I knew that rapped, you wrote your rhymes or you freestyle. So go in the studio, same thing. He cuts it. He says the same rap. We thinking, okay, the credentials for a rapper is if you rap, you wrote the words. We didn't know Cass. We didn't even know the Cold Crush existed because Mike and I were in Englewood, Hackensack, and Teaneck. Now the record blows up. We start moving around. We start getting around. We start rubbing shoulders with people. And all of a sudden, we find out he did not create those lyrics. Now, here's what the story is. I'm sure after he did his audition and knew he was going to get this opportunity to record, he probably went to Kaz and said, hey, Kaz, this is what's going on. I need some raps. Now, the story that I get or I hear is that allegedly Kaz said, okay, take the book. Well, you have to always understand. See, most people don't remember a time when there was not rap music. There was no such thing as you could become successful you could become wealthy you could live off of your music for the rest nobody had any inclinations whatsoever so that's the thing too yes he didn't go about it the right way but in the same breath nobody knew it was going to be what it's become master g still gets frustrated about the whole thing and then the other thing that I want to get across to everybody is that Mike wrote every lyric that he ever said. I wrote every lyric that I've, that I've ever said. So sometimes people, they want to group us in. They say, well, all of it is fake. They're, they're, they're not real rappers. I was rapping in Hangerwood. I was rapping in Hackensack. I was writing raps. Mike, the same thing. You know, so sometimes that, that's the loop that bothers me. People think, oh, well, they just, they were Millie Vanilli. No. The Sugar Hill Gang faced other controversies. A lawsuit from Le Chic for the music used in Rapper's Delight. Some MCs said their lyrics were too playful rather than showing the reality of life in the South Bronx, the community where the music originated. Some felt it was a commercial imitation of the culture. But Master G, who's incredibly grateful for the life he's been given, says nothing can tarnish their legacy. Good, better, and different, and everything's got light and dark. I don't care what you do. I don't care who you are. Kennedy was the greatest president that we've ever had. Light and dark. Does it tarnish his legacy because he's got a little darkness? No. Martin Luther King. Light and dark. Does it tarnish his legacy? No. Because he did what he did. We did what we did. We brought this music to the world. We are the ambassadors of this music. I don't care what you say, who this, what's going on. Wonder Mike, Big Bang Hank, and Master G are the first of their kind. Period.
Rapper's Delight was the first hip-hop song to make it onto the Billboard charts. Their legacy helped launch the careers of countless MCs. Sylvia, who has since passed away, built the first rap label. She was also the force behind Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five's groundbreaking song, The Message. Hank has since passed as well, but today, Master G continues to tour with Wonder Mike, where their fans love hearing rapper's delight. Before I let him go, his thoughts on hip-hop today. I appreciate the evolution of the music. Because how can I not be cool with something that I help bring to the world? I think it's going to continue to blossom. I think it's going to continue to evolve with the world in itself. It speaks to what's happening. Things that a person can say now in a song, I couldn't say. As America changed, hip-hop changed. As hip-hop moves into the 80s, a shift begins. MCs become front and center. Commercial rap pushes social commentary. And disc tapes start to emerge. We're going to get into all of that in future episodes, including where the name hip-hop actually comes from. Now, Master G and I spoke for over an hour, so next week I'm going to drop that full interview, and the following week will be part three of The Birth of Hip-Hop. Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying our series, please hit that subscribe button. Also, rate and review our show. This helps us in the podcast rankings. Beyond Black History Month, a Hip Hop May Takeover is a special production of 1010 Wins, WCBS News Radio 880, and Odyssey. Special thanks to producers Jill Webb and Dempsey Pillott. Andy Egan Thorpe is our audio engineer, and I'm your host and managing producer of podcasts, Famie Redwood. Thanks for listening. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 